The Guardian. Hello, my name's John Dennis. Today, £6 billion worth of cuts to government budgets are unveiled by the Chancellor George Osborne. In the space of just one week, we have found and agreed to cut £6 billion of wasteful spending across the public sector. In today's podcast, Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee gives her reaction. If your parents have nothing, they're on minimum wage jobs, uh, and they can't give you anything, it is a huge disadvantage in life to have no cushion whatever. We'll hear from our diplomatic correspondent, Julian Borger, on the impact of The Guardian's exclusive story of how Israel offered to sell nuclear weapons to South Africa's apartheid government. They both had the same embattled outlook. They saw themselves as being up against the world and up against uh, the communist forces then and so had that kind of mindset that drew them together. And a ship in a bottle, not just any old ship, the HMS Victory no less, sails into view on Trafalgar Square's fourth plinth. I think the sails are slightly decorated. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure uh, Lord Nelson would enjoy it. It's a shame he's facing the wrong way. First, our top story today, the Chancellor George Osborne has unveiled £6.2 billion worth of spending cuts. The government's going to abolish the Child Trust Fund. But schools, Sure Start and education for 16 to 19-year-olds have been protected. Local authorities will have their budgets cut by £1.2 billion this year. George Osborne set out why he believes the cuts had to happen now. We sought the advice of the Treasury and the Bank of England and both confirmed that there is a strong economic argument for taking early action to deal with our debt. Uh, Let me remind you what the Governor of the Bank of England said. It is essential, these are his words, it is essential to take measures this fiscal year to demonstrate the determination of the new government. We need to take urgent action to keep our interest rates lower for longer, to boost confidence in the economy and protect jobs, to show the world that we can live within our means. We need to tackle the deficit so that our debt repayments don't spiral out of control. And the more we do now, the more we can spend on the things that really matter in the years ahead. Osborne was flanked by the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, the Liberal Democrats, David Laws, who's charged with policing government departments to make sure they're cutting budgets as they're supposed to. And this action is designed to send a shockwave through government departments and to focus ministers and civil servants on whether spending in these areas is really a priority in the difficult times we're now facing. We are taking other actions to cut the cost of government, There will be a civil service recruitment freeze across government departments and agencies with only limited exceptions for frontline and business critical staff, which will require the personal sign-off of the relevant Secretary of State or Chief Executive. Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee says the Child Trust Fund was a success story, an effective way of getting poorer families saving for their children's future. It's very sad because it was one of the most imaginative and... uh, 
innovative things that Labour did. It really was going to give a reasonable chunk of money to children when they were 18 who wouldn't otherwise have any money at all. Children who might want to spend it on their education or perhaps uh, having a bit of money to put down on their first flat or buy a car or move away to somewhere where they might get a better job. All middle-class children have money behind them to fall back on. If your parents have nothing, there are minimum wage jobs, uh, and they can't give you anything. It is a huge disadvantage in life to have no cushion whatever. And looking at this package of cuts uh, in the round, um, how, how does it play with the sort of party's election promises that frontline services weren't going to be affected? Well, nobody knows what the difference is between a frontline service <laughs> and, a, and, and, and a pen-pushing bureaucrat. I mean, as somebody who works in a police station doing the boring paperwork for the police, a pen-pushing bureaucrat, you fire them and then the police have to do the job instead. There is no distinction between what goes on behind and who's actually sitting at the front counter of any of these public services. So that's all a bit of smoke and mirrors. I don't think there's anything here that's amazingly shocking, according to the manifestos of these two parties. I mean, they said they would cut, and they've cut. And they've said the sorts of things they would cut. And that's more or less what it's been like. But I'm not sure that the public were really looking closely. If you've got, you know, kids coming up to university and you suddenly find there are 10,000 fewer jobs than you thought, and nevertheless, 100,000 more people applying this year than applied last year, you're going to be quite frightened. Um, I think it's making real things that were sort of there before the election suddenly becoming horribly true. And will this risk a double dip recession? There's quite a danger. A lot of economists are saying today, I've been talking to a lot, Skidelsky, for instance, who is the uh, biographer of Keynes and the keeper of his flame, is very worried indeed. Right across Europe, uh, austerity packages all round, except for the brave French who are refusing to do it, uh, just means a spiral downwards like the Irish find themselves in, where you cut and then the markets still come after you and you cut again. Your tax receipts go down, your growth goes down, everything goes down and you can't get out of a downward spiral. And uh, most of the Keynesian economists are pretty horrified and say, all right, this is only the first bit, but we are nowhere out of the recession and a double dip is certainly a possibility. Now, we're still sort of finding out uh, what kind of complexion this coalition government uh, consists of. Um, Looking at uh, today's announcements, uh, where do we detect the influence of the Lib Dems in this? It's interesting in these cuts because you don't see anything very particular Lib Dem flavoured. You did in all the previous announcements that were not about money, uh, the coalition agreement, the sorts of uh, concessions they got, which were considerable. But now we're down to the actual hard cash. I can't see... Vince Cable's hand in this. For one thing, they didn't want six billion cut this year anyway, and Vince Cable was being himself a Keynesian, and Keynes, after all, was a liberal, didn't want any of this, uh, and I don't see any slackening in the pace. Polly Toynbee. Well, the now shadow Chancellor, Alistair Darling, criticised his successor's plans, and he said Osborne should have announced his cuts in the House of Commons. David Laws, until a couple of weeks ago, did agree with us that taking money prematurely out of the economy uh, presented a risk. But, you know, he's changed his mind now. Uh, And having said they're going to be a different sort of government, why don't they come to the House of Commons and spell out in detail what all this means? Michael White's in The Guardian's Westminster office. 
They're short of money and they decided to strangle the baby in its cot. You know, these things are all okay. They're legitimate decisions. They say we've got to cut public expenditure much faster than uh, than Labour said we had to. And the reason they say this is that if we don't, this is absolutely critical, then markets will lose confidence in the British government's capacity to manage its own debt and its own deficit. The two things are different, of course. One is the annual deficit, the debt is the historic debt, and then we'll lose our AAA uh, rating and we'll end up, uh, rather like Greece, having to pay a lot more uh, money to service our debt, uh, which is where the Labour government found itself when it came to power, took over in 1997, I seem to remember. We were spending more on uh, uh, servicing the debt than we were on education. George Osborne said today, if we're not careful, we'll get into that position. And I shouted at the telly, that's where we were, George, when you left power, but never mind, it's a long time ago. <laughs> Will the um, cuts in consultancy and travel costs uh, announced today really send a shockwave through Whitehall, as David Laws claimed? Well, they'll certainly send a shockwave through Whitehall and through Mayfair and the places where these kind of guys live, but they'll also send a shockwave through the uh, restaurants, uh, coffee shops, um, uh, dry cleaners, flower shops, and all the other things that uh, dry, uh, that consultancies use. The idea that you're cutting public expenditure in order to restore the opportunities for private private profit, profit is a bit kind of naive. It reminds me a bit of early Thatcherism. Where do these private companies get their profits from and of course consultancies are private companies they get them in many respects uh, from uh, the public sector so it's not quite as simple as these two virtuous young men uh, George Osborne and David Laws uh, suggested it was today it's much more complicated and the fear must be all the brainy people seem to uh, be agreed on this that uh, the danger in what they're doing is not that it's bad or that we won't survive it most people will survive it except those coffee shops and dry cleaners and flower shops in mayfair but that uh, it'll drag the economy down the idea that simply cut these large sums out of public expenditure when public expenditure is keeping demand going is risky frankly it's not just a labor election ploy there's a real point there and it is shared by much cleverer people than me and was there much sympathy in westminster um for alistair darling's point today that these cuts weren't announced in the house of Commons. Well, it's always a joy to see governments elected saying we will respect Parliament and we will do this and we will do that, and newspapers sometimes being idiotic enough to believe them. And as soon as they come into power, what's the first thing they do? They leak the contents, so it would seem, of the Queen's speech to the Sunday papers. Gosh, I can remember that for the last 30 or 40 years. So Geoffrey Howe, lovely man, last Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer, but two used to do that quite a lot. Uh, and then, uh, as you say, or Alistair Darling said, uh, they don't make the statement of the House, which they could have done later this week. They make it in a patsy um, press conference in the Treasury Courtyard in dappled sunshine this morning. It's easier that way. The hacks don't ask such good questions. And I speak as a hack myself. Michael White. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. I'm John Dennis. Still to come in Guardian Daily, Israel, South Africa and the bomb. But first... In London's Trafalgar Square, in the shadow of Nelson's column, a replica of Nelson's ship, HMS Victory, inside a giant bottle, is now adorning the vacant fourth plinth. Nigeria-born Yinka Shonibare becomes the latest artist to create an artwork for the plinth. He follows Rachel White-Reed, Mark Wallinger and Anthony Gormley. The Guardian's Tim Maybe went down to look at it. High up above me is at last a sculpture for the fourth plinth here in Trafalgar Square that Horatio Nelson, on his even higher column, might have approved of. 
He's had to accept a procession of different people who balloted to have their half an hour on the plinth, a plexiglass coloured model of a modern hotel or the sculpture of a pregnant disabled woman. But now here's his own ship, the Victory, but in a ten foot long bottle, an outside version of the sort of thing my aged aunt would have had on her mantelpiece. British-Nigerian artist Yinka Shonibar has added one extra touch to the otherwise scale model, multicoloured sails in Indonesian fabric. Most of the people around me here are enjoying it. Um, I really like it. It's like completely different to what's been up there already. And you can see a lot of work has been involved in making it. It feels like real craft yeah, as opposed yeah, to just... Uh... But it is art as well, but you can see there's a lot of workmanship gone into it. Yes, I've only just seen it. I've read about it. It looks a suitably decorative and emblematic piece for the plinth, I think. I think it's good. What do you think about the idea of it being in a bottle? It's a good sort of motif. Uh, ships in bottles is a well-known sort of decorative thing. And it's practical as well because it means that the material inside can be more delicate than it could be if it was a normal sculpture. We've come specially to look at it, actually. Yeah. 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 What are the other ones you've seen that you like? Well, we've seen the park and the um, Anthony, Anthony Gormley. Gormley. We came regularly to see that. In fact, yeah. I applied to get on it, but I didn't, I didn't manage it. I think the ship's absolutely fantastic. It represents British. If it wasn't for North Austin, we'd be speaking French. And also the Nigerian artists, it's brought all the nations together. It should go to the Greenwich Museum. That's to the Maritime Museum? Yeah. Very good. And the sails? A bit leery. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want that on my uh, front room wallpaper, but no, I'm, I'm sure they're authentic, possibly. <laughs> it's tremendous. I live in London. I came down especially to see it. I heard on the news this morning. Uh, being ex-Royal Navy as well. It's a shame it's not a bit lower, really, but... Uh... And as an ex-Naval man, I mean, would you have preferred it to be more precisely exactly as the uh, old ship used to be? I, yes, I think the sails uh, are slightly decorated. <laughs> yes, I'm sure uh, Lord Nelson would enjoy it. It's a shame he's facing the wrong way. <laughs> and this is how the artist sees his work. I was really thinking about the history of uh, Trafalgar Square. Nelson uh, won the battle of Trafalgar um, against Napoleon. Um, my um, generation in London, uh, multicultural London, is, you know, in a sense, uh, a consequence of that uh, victory. I decided to produce um, a replica of that ship, but then to put, to change the sails into African textiles, where now, in a way, um, the makers, if you like, of uh, global contemporary culture. And London is a dynamic centre for that. But now, for the professional critic, Adrian Searle. He was there for the unveiling. It is a scale model of uh, Nelson's victory in a very big bottle, and it sits on the plinth on a little stand, and all the sails are done in batik prints. And it looks kind of small and vulnerable on the top of the plinth. It's not as big and prepossessing as one might have imagined it would be. Nelson looks very small, far away on the top of his uh, column. And I think the point of it is kind of interesting in that it, you know, it does refer back to this great British victory in the Napoleonic Wars. And at the same time, it's a sort of celebration of Britishness now. So you've got this rural Britannia symbol that's been turned on its head. Tim may be reporting. Guardian's revelations that Israel offered to sell South Africa nuclear weapons have added weight to claims of double standards by Israel. 
A secret military agreement was signed in 1975 by the two countries' defence ministers, Shimon Peres, who's now President of Israel, and P.W. Boerter of South Africa's apartheid regime. It's the first official evidence of Israeli nuclear weapons. Our diplomatic editor is Julian Borgia. Well, it's further evidence of uh, Israeli-South African uh, cooperation in the 70s when uh, Israel had a, a nuclear weapons arsenal and uh, South Africa was developing. It has a lot of resonance now, of course, because all the focus is on Iran and a lot of the non-aligned and non-weapon states are saying there are double standards that uh, Iran is being uh, governed and approached with different standards than, than Israel, with a, which is a country which actually has uh, a nuclear, nuclear weapons program and this is evidence that they have been proliferators in the past. And they were strange bedfellows really weren't they? Uh, apartheid South Africa and Israel. But they both had the same embattled outlook. They saw themselves as being up against the world and up against uh, the communist forces then and so had that kind of mindset that drew them together. Now, um, you've said that uh, it adds weight to the claim of double standards by Israel. And uh, the, the, the nuclear non-proliferation talks are currently going on in New York. I mean, how does this affect these talks? Well, the timing of this is really interesting because uh, those talks have been going on for the better part of a month. They're coming to a, a close now. The idea is really to, to restore and update the global arms control regime. What it's coming down to... Uh, it is a, a compromise between the states that have weapons and those that don't. At the heart of it is this idea of a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. That's something that the Arab states led by Egypt are calling for, and really saying uh, if we are to go along with further restrictions on non-weapon states, on their ability to acquire nuclear technology, we want some active, practical steps now on something that is close to our heart, and that is making the zone where we live, the region where we live, nuclear weapons free. That's a way of putting pressure on Israel and really putting Israel in the same box as Iran. And the, the Western powers have resisted this up to now, but it's very difficult to carry on resisting that kind of pressure. And Barack Obama has said that ridding the world of nuclear weapons is, is one of his top priorities. So will Washington now put pressure on Israel to, to cut its nuclear arsenal? Maybe not to cut nuclear arsenal. There is gradually rising US pressure on Israel to come cleaner, to come into the NPT or to declare what they have, uh, to become more transparent. Uh, now that pressure will gradually rise, but um, Israel, as in other issues, has ways of, of sort of biting back at that kind of pressure and hurting Barack Obama politically at home. So it's a very delicate game being played out. How damaging are the revelations in The Guardian to the reputation of Shimon Peres, who's now Israel's president? Pretty damaging. Uh, you know, he has been seen as being uh, very much on the dove wing of uh, Israeli politics. But here you have him sitting down with P.W. Boerter and talking about missiles and uh, uh, warheads in a way, you know, in a kind of friendly manner. And that there is no dispute that Israel gave South Africa, the apartheid regime in South Africa, a lot of help in its nuclear program. And there is evidence that they cooperated in a, a test, a nuclear test, uh, in 1979. Uh, they also provided the yellow cake uranium at the, at the beginning of South Africa's, uh, South Africa's program. So this is... Uh, 
This is a reminder that uh, they have been strange bedfellows in the past. Julian Borger. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>